Welcome to On Scripts Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study/biblicalworld. Hey everyone, we're starting a new series here on the Biblical World podcast. Uh, a brief series looking at the best finds of 2023. So we're casting our mind back to the previous year to see what were the most significant archaeological discoveries related to the study of the Bible uh, and its world. And so we hope you enjoy this discussion. Thanks so much for listening and for supporting the podcast. Welcome back, Biblical World listeners. Today we have a special episode. It is that time of year, the time for top 10 lists. Uh, I'm joined... I'm joined by Kyle. Kyle, it's been a while since we've recorded an episode. It has. It's been too long. It has. We've been so busy with teaching, and I've been working on a movie and a book and a bunch of other things, but you know, we've got to get this one in. Yeah, you took a nap? You took one? Yeah. <laughs> a couple. It was really good. Well, that's good. <laughs> I wish. We need those. Well, as we end 2023, uh, we thought it would be a good idea to do our first annual a top 10 list, top 10 archaeological discoveries. Um, this this will be a little bit different than other top 10 lists because we're actually going to talk about way more than 10. Uh, we're really going to give you not only a, a, a top 10 list that we think are the top 10 discoveries, we're going to give you a few honorable mentions along the way. And I might even say that this is not so much top 10 discoveries as it is top 10 stories. Uh, So that's the first thing you need to know. Uh, The second thing you need to know is that this is not arranged in order of uh, importance. So we are are moving through the list from uh, number 10 all the way down to number one, but we've arranged them not chronologically, excuse me, not by order of importance, but by chronology. So we have a list of stories and discoveries that are significant for the Bronze Age. So this would be Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, things that connect with the wider biblical world during the Bronze Age. And then we have a set that is in the Iron Age, which of course would be during the time of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Uh, That's actually going to be our second episode. We're going to break this down into three distinct episodes. And then finally, we have several stories that relate to the second temple and later. That'll be our third episode. And so we're going to move through these three different chronological periods and give you our choices for the top stories in biblical archaeology for 2023. Kyle, anything to add before we dive right in? No, I'm excited. There's a lot of really interesting things that have been either discovered or just new interesting stories that that are um, really fun to talk about. So I'm looking forward to this. Me too. Uh, the next, the first item of business, though, is is not the most fun uh, item to to talk about, and that is you can't really think about uh, top stories in archaeology in 2023 without thinking about what's happening in Gaza and Israel ever since October 7th. And this is not the place to really dive into all the political things involved with that. 
uh, and the attack of the terrorist organization Hamas against Israel and Israel's ongoing war against Hamas. But we do want to acknowledge that both of us, um, and I would speak specifically to doctoral advisors and colleagues, have close um, colleagues that are in the field, whether they're working with the IAA or giving their time to uh, excavate not just ancient buildings like they do most of the time and use things like basket cards and locust sheets to record destruction in ancient times. I mean, I remember doing this uh, many times at Telesafi Gath and excavating the destruction of Hazael or seeing Sennacherib's destruction, things that happened uh, seven, uh, you know, in 700 BC or 800 BC. Uh, but here in 2023, we actually have what is being hailed as a new discipline, the archaeology of, of terrorism uh, that is actually seeing Israel antiquity authorities, excavators, having to use the same archaeological techniques, not with ancient destruction, but with fresh destruction. And so it's been, I, I would say, really uh, heroic, in my opinion, to see uh, many of these colleagues uh, deal do the very difficult task of finding remains, identifying bodies, using archaeology uh, in this way. So here at the outset, we just wanted to acknowledge uh, acknowledge that and point you to some resources that we'll put in the description. Uh, there was a, a really nice podcast recently by my good friend Joe Uziel uh, of Israel Antiquities Authority, as well as a number of YouTube videos posted by uh, Aaron Mayer of Bar Ilan University, uh, where he shows visiting the sites and the ongoing work that's being done there by the IAA. So that's not in our top 10 list, but we wanted to mention that right at the beginning of our list. Kyle, anything to add there? Yeah, the, the only thing I would add is I, I think that it brings home, uh, an, an, in this particular case, an unfortunate human element that this is, you know, we're using archaeology to uncover the past in general, but there's a human element to that. And, you know, having to work with the the modern situation and modern remains can only be, I can only imagine how challenging and difficult that is. But I think it's also a good reminder uh, for us, for us who are working with ancient material, even when we find destruction level, there's a human element to it. And I think there just needs to be a sense of recognition and, you know, reverence for lack of a better term, when we come across that, that these were actual people that experienced these horrific events. And unfortunately, such events continue to happen. Yeah, I think that's so true. One of the main principles, if you want to call it an ethic of archaeology, that has always stuck with me uh, comes from Gabi Borkai, eminent professor of archaeology of, of Tel Aviv and then Bar Ilan and, and Jerusalem University College, where I had him, is that archaeology is first and foremost about people, and that it, it, the first among them are the people that you're digging with, that they're, that they're values and their well-being is, is the most important thing. And then, of course, the people that you're excavating, the, the deceased people. And, and so to see something so recent and so fresh and having people that are re- related and in some cases know the very people that they're excavating, it's uh, really uh, quite quite um, something to, uh, to behold. And I, so I completely agree with you. Just it's a, a, a very difficult task. Well, let's move into something a bit more connected with the past. In fact, this is going to be our oldest discovery. So number 10 on our list doesn't come from Israel, 
uh, or the vicinity of where we might think that most of the biblical lands are, but it actually comes from one of the most incredible sites in the entire biblical world. I'm talking about the site of Hattusha. Hattusha was the, the capital of the kingdom of Hatti, which flourished from about 1800 BC, reaching a peak about 1300 BC and 1200 BC before it was destroyed at the end of the 13th century. Uh, this, this site was excavated um, about 120 years ago or so and has been massively uh, reconstructed in many ways. It's an absolutely incredible site, and one of the best things about it was it wasn't really built up uh, in later periods. And so when you excavate the site, you're able to actually excavate the city as it would have looked on the eve of really the end of the world. Uh, you know, Eric Klein has a book called 1177, The Year Civilization Collapsed. Uh, and Hatusha uh, didn't quite make it to 1177. Uh, it was destroyed a couple of years before that, uh, a couple of decades before that. Uh, but it nevertheless shows us this type of destruction. And so it's not, so the discovery is not Hatusha, but a particular thing that was found there. Uh, they found a, a tablet which has a previously unknown language on it. Now, the language is being called the language of Kalasma or Kalashma. Now, this is particularly interesting because, well, anytime you find a completely new language and the literature of a people that has never been understood or known before, I think that bears a lot of weight and significance. But this is really interesting, not only for uh, Kalashma, which is probably uh, just on the southwestern shores of the Black Sea, somewhere between the region of the heartland of the Hittites, which was uh, in uh, Eastern Asia, Eastern uh, Asia Minor, and uh, the vicinity of Constantinople or Istanbul um, on the west side. That's where we think it is. We don't know much about it. But what's so fascinating and what it reveals to us about Hattusha is something that we've known to some extent for a while. And that is Hattusha was not just interested, uh, or I should say the Hittites were not just interested in recording their own literature. They, they have literature and it's extremely fascinating, uh, different apologies that have a lot of correspondence to what we read in the Hebrew Bible, all manner of, of uh, uh, religious texts. But they seem to have been very concerned with the keeping of ancient languages. Kalashma is not the only language that has been found there. We find several other uh, languages besides Hittite that were preserved in these tablets. Now, I should say a thing about the the tablets themselves. Uh, we don't always find we don't always find an archive of of, of cuneiform tablets. Here, that we were lucky to find it. But besides just again the typical Hittite language that was found, we have these other languages, and so this kind of gives us a window into a completely lost world that can only be revealed through archaeology. And so here we are in, in 2023, uh, the, the settlement of Kalashma, the kingdom of Kalashma, whatever Kalashma is, is almost 
uh, unknown before this, other than hearing about it from some historical sources. Now we have the language of this of this people, and archaeology will continue to hopefully find more and more of uh, of this people that's been lost to us, only just preserved in this tablet. Yeah, I think that's really good, and I think one of the really fun things too is when when such discoveries come about, it's helpful. Um, for linguistics uh, reasons, because we get more and more pictures or insights into variations within a family of uh, family of languages, or even the evolution of specific families, and so um, it'll be interesting to see what what comes from this. Yeah, if we're thinking Indo-European languages, also the same thing with Semitic languages. So we're going to probably mention something a little bit later as well about those. And it's, it's always filling in this gap so that we understand the way that language operates, transforms, moves. Um, and again, it is a human element. There's you know the sociolinguistic element, which is such an important thing to see how things transform over time. Absolutely. And I, I think that this is kind of one of those, I always like to say it's a pet peeve of mine not to have pet peeves. Uh, but one of the pet peeves, if I have them, is to use archaeology as like a a weapon in apologetics to say, well, the liberals were saying there's no Hittites and they found the Hittites. Um, well, they did find the Hittites a hundred years ago. And, and I really must ask, who was saying that there were <laughs> Hittites? I, I mean, uh, who was saying that? I, I, I have yet to find anybody that said there were no Hittites. But these particular Hittites that were found are not at least mostly the Hittites of the Bible. Hittites of the Bible relate probably to the children of Het that live in the vicinity of Hebron. The Hittites here are mentioned in the Bible, but probably their ancestors or their their descendants, the Neo-Hittites or the Luvians that we find in the northern part uh, of the southern Levant. So the impact upon our understanding of the Bible is is somewhat adjacent in terms of who these people actually are. Uh, a good example of this is even in the, the Table of Nations in Genesis 10, where we read about this same area, but we don't find in the Table of Nations the Hittites. We don't find the Kingdom of Hatti uh, and different places that are mentioned there. Instead, we find uh, what seems to be later uh, civilizations, uh, such as uh, names that remind us of the Phrygian kingdom and Sardis and so on, uh, and not the Hittites. So you might be asking, how does this connect us to the wider biblical world? And I want to go back to a point I was making earlier about how the Hittites become this kind of museum almost, or a way of preserving literary culture uh, and, and some really unique ways. Um, I mean, maybe you've heard of Ashurbanipal and his great library that existed in Nineveh that was excavated by the British Museum. This is where we get, of course, the Gilgamesh epic for the first time uh, and it giving us the flood story. That happened, you know, in the, 18, in the 1850s and the 1860s uh, and was eventually revealed to have this amazing story. Well, that is a lot later than the time period of the Hittites. I mean, Ashurbanipal did this in the in the seventh century, and what we find in Hattusha is already in the thirteenth 
and the 12th century, a collection of literature that is really um, unsurpassed in terms of its variety, uh, of its different cultural distinctiveness. Uh, Just speaking of Gilgamesh, we have a version of Gilgamesh that was uh, at Hattusha. We have a text uh, called uh, related to El, it's called Elkinursa, and Baal and Asherah. And in this text, which looks a lot like texts that we have from Ugarit, which is from, from the same time period, we, we read about how Baal is going to couple with Asherah, uh, the wife of El. And that's very interesting because that seems to be the background of what we find in the biblical text. So for instance, we have Jezebel and her prophets of Baal and Asherah, and you have these longstanding ideas about them somehow being related. And yet there's no actual direct evidence of that in Ugarit, at least that I am aware of, but we find evidence of this Canaanite god El, this Canaanite god Baal, and this Canaanite goddess Asherah, not in Ugarit or Patsor or other places, but we find it in far off Hatusha. Uh, besides that, that that text uh, that I, that I referred to before, it also mentions El sitting at the top of a mountain uh, with rivers uh, going out in front of him, which reminds us also of, of the Garden of Eden. And so here we see Mesopotamian myth that is preserved at Hatusha. We see Ugaritic slash Canaanite myth preserved in a different form at Hatusha, which helps us understand the Bible. And these are different cultures and different languages preserved at at Hatusha. So there's a sense in which it's the preserver of cultures that surrounded it, far-flung cultures that it interacted with. Uh, And this would, of course, include Egypt, which was its main rival during the period. It's here at Hatusha that we find uh, a record of or the Hittite version of the Great Treaty of Kadesh. But it's also a, a bridge, you might say, or a place that we can see how some of the ideas of Mesopotamia uh, and the great epic, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, were, were transported and slightly altered and used in Hittite myth, but also passed to the West. If you go further west of Hattusha, to the edge of Asia Minor, you encounter this little old place called Willusa, otherwise known as Troy. And around the same time as the destruction of Hattusha, most likely we have the famous Trojan War, the destruction of, of, of Troy. And after, we have the development of these major epics, which feature these these heroes of of power and strength. Uh, And from what we can tell, the way an Achilles is cast or the way some of the gods are in the story, especially a a character like Zeus, the high god, and him who slays Typhon, this this serpent uh, god, or or, um, I should say Titan that he kills. These have a lot of parallels with Hittite literature found in Hattusha. For instance, there's a famous myth about a storm god killing a serpent, which dates 
at least at least to the 13th century BC, which sounds almost exactly like Zeus and Typhon. And so there's more and more uh, thought that what we see then, uh, perhaps uniquely because of the unique set of archaeological circumstances, is Hattusha preserving many of these traditions uh, that allow us to get a sense of what was the wider literary mind uh, during the Late Bronze Age. And perhaps we might even say, given the fact that it was at a, there was a worldwide international trade at the time, how it would have been preserved to even a later period. Uh, and one last thing, I think perhaps biggest of all, and that is this question of even flood stories. Of course, in the Gilgamesh epic, we have the, the great story of the flood with a flood hero and the gods demanding a flood because of the noise uh, and they're not very, they're not very happy. Uh, and then we have the, the, the uh, god Ea or Inki who uh, talks to himself just in case anyone hears when he jumps up on a reed wall and he says, uh, save life, build boat. And we have Utnapishtim or Atrahasis, depending on which version you read, who builds a boat. And we have this story of, of the flood. That story was apparently written down in the third millennium BC and was known in southern Mesopotamia, the, the area that we call Sumeria. But it became such a widely known story and such a widely known uh, myth that it reached places like Hattusha and Troy and beyond into the areas of Greece. And we even find this very myth in Greek mythology with the story of uh, Deucalion and his his building a boat and, and, and being saved from the flood. Of course, that has many parallels with what we find in the Bible. And so to me, this is, uh, we don't know what will come of this discovery of the tablet of Kalashma, but it tells us of, I think, this awareness of a cultural world of ideas of not only literature, but beliefs about the different gods, how they act. And, and we can even trace some of these elements and, and how, they, how they are transformed over time. Our next uh, top 10 is at a very different part of the world. Uh, we've gone as far west and north as we will go, and now we will go as far south as we will go. Kyle, this is my favorite kind of discovery because it wasn't made in the ground. It was made in the library. And not only was it found in the library, it was found in terms of a toponym. What we're talking about is the discovery of the very first reference to the site of Sinai, to the region of Sinai. Now, those of you who don't know, and perhaps we should do a, an entire podcast on this at some point, the traditional view of Mount Sinai's location is in southern Sinai, the southern Sinai Peninsula, at a location called Jebel Musa. Uh, Jebel Musa in Arabic means Mountain of Moses, and there is a longstanding tradition going back at least to the 4th century AD, I would suggest um, that the the tradition goes for sure back to the 1st century AD because I believe Josephus tells us 
uh, of the same type of pilgrim route that would have taken you to this area, and perhaps even earlier. Um, but of course, there's many different ideas about where Mount Sinai uh, can be or should be. Uh, for instance, there is the suggestion that Mount Sinai is at Har Karkom, which is just on the border between Israel and Egypt. There's the suggestion that it is at Jebel Qasim El Tarif, which I think is the suggestion that was popularized uh, by James Cameron a while back with Simha Jakovici and the, the naked archaeologists. Uh, and then there's the more far-flung, uh, dare I say, ridiculous suggestions that the mountain of Sinai or Horeb should be located in Saudi Arabia. Uh, in fact, these seem to be the regular work of, of people thinking about trying to find the real Mount Sinai. Now, this is not the place to, to go into it here. Um, and again, we probably should do this at a, a separate time. But I'll just say uh, maybe bluntly or just very straightforwardly, there is zero evidence uh, that Mount Sinai is located in Saudi Arabia. Uh, zilch. Uh, it doesn't work geographically. It doesn't work historically. It doesn't work really at any level. Uh, and so I, I think this discovery is another nail in the coffin of the so-called Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia view or Mount Sinai in, in Midian. And so what is this what is this discovery? How do, what does it tell us? Well, it comes from uh, uh, an Egyptologist named Julian uh, Cooper, who wrote an article in ASOR Today, arguing that he had found the oldest reference to Mount Sinai. And I'm just going to read the, uh, the text. The text itself was found uh, in an excavation uh, near, I believe it was near Thebes, uh, so it's a, it's from a stele uh, that was excavated by actually Carter, the same excavator who excavated uh, Pharaoh Tutankhamun's tomb. And on this stele, we have the following reference. I am a God's seal bearer and making powerless the hill countries. When I was in Be'u, I inspected it and I traveled around the hill countries of Chenyet. Now, Keti was a seal bearer, as the inscription says, and an overseer of quarries in the 11th dynasty in Egypt. That's about 2150 to 1990 BC. So we're talking about the end of the third millennium, very beginning of the second millennium uh, BC. Uh, this is a well-known period, actually, uh, in, in Egypt in some ways. And we do know that in the area of Southern Sinai, there are a number of different mineral resources. And the inscription goes on to describe some of these uh, mineral resources, including turquoise, ore, charcoal, carnelian, uh, lapis, and, and others. And his, his argument is the context, the geographical context of this stele has to be in the vicinity of Sarabit al-Hadam. Sarabit al-Hadam is uh, a well-known place because of its connections with the so-called Proto-Sinaitic script, which dates a little bit after this period, 
where we probably have Semitic either captives or uh, locals uh, conscripted to operate in the turquoise mines there. And they developed th- this Semitic script, which is the forerunner or uh, one of the ancestors of what's going to become later uh, Hebrew, Pale- uh, Proto-Hebrew and, and, and so on. Uh, it has, for instance, um, we, we see ABC series that that show some of the alphabet there and the Aleph. You can see the development of, of the, the different letters. But that's, in some ways... A, a very incredible discovery, but a side piece to why Sarabit el Hadam existed. It existed for its mineral resources, especially turquoise, but also in the vicinity, uh, copper. And so from the inscription, it seems that this guy, Keti, was in charge as a seal bearer, and he was also in charge of quarrying this area. And he traveled, and he's bragging about it in his in his tomb, that I traveled to Be'u, which may be the ancient name of Sirabit al-Hadam, and I kept going, and I went to the hill countries of Chenyet, which, uh, and I won't get into um, how exactly that works. I'll let Julian Cooper's article uh, inform you, uh, but he believes that this is the way that Egyptian would translate the name Sinai. Sinai. Now, Sinai itself has long been an etymological issue. Uh, it is, the way it's spelled in Hebrew, is shows it may be a foreign name. And at least the way the biblical text explains it is probably connected with a bush. In fact, the bush that, that uh, Moses sees at Mount Sinai slash Mount Horeb is a sinna uh, or a, a bush. And it seems that the biblical text derives the name that way. Regardless, uh, I think that the name occurring in a source hundreds of years before uh, the Israelites and Moses would have been in the vicinity is an extraordinary toponymic discovery and shows that this region was, was known as Sinai already at the end of the third millennium BC. And, and who knows? Maybe there are other inscriptions out there from uh, the area of the from the era of the Middle Kingdom uh, that would show similar things if we would look. By the way, Julian Cooper's uh, book, which I think is called "Toponymy on the Periphery," is an amazing book that looks at toponyms uh, in this period, all the way up to the era of the New Kingdom, and shows uh, first of all. Uh, the wider Egyptian world in terms of the places that they went to, but also shows the existence of uh, most likely peoples in this vicinity, which the Bible likely identifies as the Midianites and the Edomites and probably the Israelites, as the Shasu of of Yah. Many people have considered this to be a tribe connected with with Yahweh. And so that this fits in with that view. Uh, that this area was known as Sinai, and in this vicinity, at least according to other inscriptions that we have from the New Kingdom, there were the Shasu, these nomadic peoples that are in some mysterious way connected uh, with the Edomites. We also have their name, the the Seir, I should say. Uh, The Israelites are not mentioned yet, uh, but we don't have those in, in these texts, but we do probably have the name Yahweh, which is probably the earliest reference 
to the name Yahweh, which will come up later in one of our other discussions. Kyle, anything to add here? Yeah, I think the one thing I would add is the just it's interesting to think about the continuity of names. You know, toponymics is such an important thing, and particularly for those doing historical geography, which you know you and I love to do and, and think about. And with Israel, you've got um, you know one of the big ways of identifying sites in modern times is using toponymics, uh, looking at you know the Arab names, preservation, and sometimes they. You know, there is, it's a process, shall we say, that a name is is remembered and preserved from generation to generation to generation. And this is, I think, just a really great example that this has been something that has been ongoing for millennia. It isn't just something that we can benefit from in more historic periods um, in order to do historic geography ourselves, but it's something that already indicates that people people know the landscape, know where they're um, where they are but also where they've been. And I think it, it allows us to, again, connect to people in the past. Absolutely. Uh, I said I wouldn't say too much about this uh, in, terms of, in terms of being Mount Sinai, but very briefly here, the key reason why the entire route of the Israelites is not well-established has nothing to do with Jebel Musa or maybe one of its, you know, nearby peaks of not being identified with Mount Sinai. The key reason is that they, they, the the location of Mount Sinai, in my opinion, was never lost. So now we can say, both they knew where Mount Sinai was before Moses. Um, the the key site that was lost was Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea was lost and identified with Petra, and you can see that in Josephus. You can see that in the Targum. Uh, they say. Even in the uh, Targum, where it'll say like the wilderness of Kadesh, they'll say uh, the wilderness of Rechem, which is the Semitic name uh, of Petra. And so what ended up happening is once the once Judah fell in 586 BC, Kadesh Barnea and its forts that were there from the 10th century to the, to the early 6th century, they no longer were used and apparently no longer identified with Kadesh Barnea as the Nabataeans emerged and became the main power in in the region. And so what that meant is that the name and the traditions became disconnected with the route that would you would connect Kadesh Barnea to uh, Mount Sinai. And so if you look at a story like uh, Eusebi- or Eusebius telling us names in the Anamostakon, or if we look at Josephus, who gives us a, a steady itinerary from what to him is the the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, which is the, the the northern end of the Gulf of Suez, and he clearly goes has the Israelites going down the coast, the eastern coastline of the Gulf of Suez, and most likely pointing us to Jebel Musa. But when it gets to the issue with the Amalekites when they're attacked at, at Rephidim, and he talks about Kadesh Barnea. He goes all the way to Petra, which but is, is far. It's not, it's not close. And so it's somewhere along the way the name was, uh, was transformed there. But to Kyle's point, it was never lost because next to Ein el-Kuderet, the great oasis that everyone agrees is Kadesh Barnea, we have the name uh, Ein Kadis in Arabic, which preserves the name. And so the Arabic... The Arabic names 
and the physical geography, the Arabic toponymy, the physical geography are the essential ingredient for understanding uh, these these place names. And the third leg here would be to, uh, would be philology, which is exactly what Julian Cooper has done here and showing us that we have an earlier reference to the name. Of course, the fourth important point is archaeology. Uh, and I doubt we'll find any evidence of you know, shattered golden calf or, or other things near Jebel Musa. Uh, but again, should we really expect to find that? Well, that's our number nine reference, or, or excuse me, our number nine in the list, the first reference to Sinai. Let's move now to a, I think, a fantastic discovery. We'll come back closer to home. It was announced over this summer uh, after not really hearing much about the excavations uh, of Tel Shimron that they have uncovered one of the most fantastic buildings ever uncovered in the land of Israel. This particular building is is made from mud brick, and it dominates the summit. In fact, a couple a couple years ago, I remember visiting the site, and anyone who's been to Tel Shimron uh, knows that you have this very steep climb, and it's really kind of an odd site uh, because it's got this massive hill right in the, the Acropolis, but it's not very big in terms of in terms of its breadth. Uh, but then it's got this lower part uh, that's currently being excavated by Daniel Master and and his team. And it turns out uh, there's a reason why <laughs> that there's this very almost cliff that you have to climb when you visit the top of the, the top of the tell. It's because there's this massive middle bronze building slash fortress slash we're not really sure what it is yet that they uncovered and announced this summer. One of the most important parts about it is that this building was covered in a, in a very short period of time after it was built. This meant that it was very well preserved. And uh, even until today, you can actually see the not only the mud bricks fully formed and the way that they were placed, in, placed into the building, but actually even the mortar and some of the plaster that covered, that covered them. Among other things... Uh, not only is it well dated to the Middle Bronze Age when it was built and also covered up, and so this would have been uh, to the time of the patriarchs, you know, the, the heyday of the Canaanites, uh, but they also found uh, the very somewhat famous seven cupped bowls. They're mostly from uh, Nahariya, which is which is near, which is along the, the plain of Asher, and also thought to be cultic. Some people have suggested that these are even a forerunner of the menorah. In, any, in either case, it shows that this was a significant building, uh, and it's very rare to not only find mud bricks in such high preservation, but to find the building almost as it was when it was when it was buried. So, an incredible find. Yeah, this one is really exciting. It'll be interesting to see as they continue to excavate it um, from season to season what else, where these steps go, because there's steps that lead down and have been backfilled. And so they're trying to figure this out. But it, it speaks, I think, to the the general wealth and prosperity of the Galilee that we're, is coming into greater focus in the Middle Bronze Age. I mean, we've um, 
if you think about sites like Kabri or Hatsor, I mean, we've got some mega sites with some really um, important things happening and in, uh, connections throughout the Mediterranean already and the Near East taking place. And so in, on the one hand, finding another site like, like this at Shimron makes a lot of sense um, because this is such a, um, an international period um, but at the same time, yeah, the uniqueness of what they have is really interesting, to say the least. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. It seems like Dan Master is really good at finding really big, important things and keeping them quiet. So who knows what they've actually found? It took them a couple of years uh, to reveal the Ashkelon Cemetery uh, and came out with you know published works already uh, when when it was announced. So. Who knows what they'll find this summer. It'll be really interesting and something to definitely pay careful attention to. I, I did want to say something else about, about uh, not only this Canaanite reality of, of Shimron. Uh, it's clear that this, uh, in the Middle Bronze Age, a period we'd know not a whole lot about, other than what we see in the execration tablets. Uh, it's clear that it was an important site, and it's clear that it was a kind of sister site to Megiddo. Um, if you have a, if you can imagine yourself standing at Megiddo, looking out at the Jezreel Valley, it literally is just directly north of Megiddo. And historically, ge- geographically speaking, it guards one of the main roads that goes north towards Galilee. We call it the Shimron Pass. So it's these two sites, Megiddo and Shimron, really function together, and you can throw Yokneum there and Bakshan and, and others in the vicinity. Shimron is one of those critical sites in probably the most critical region in all of in all of Israel. And I would just draw attention to a couple of things about it. Shimron does not appear in the Bible all that often. It appears primarily in the book of uh, the book of Joshua, where we find it as a site that Joshua defeats. Now, in Joshua chapter eleven. Shimron, as well as several other sites nearby, Akshaf and Merom, are called to war by Jabin, king of Hatsor. And from a, again, from a geographical perspective, we can see why that would be the case, because Hatsor is essentially demanding that its ally or its vassals or allies come to fight with him against Joshua, this this new kid on the block. And so if we think of the major Middle Bronze Age, late Bronze Age towns of of the Jezreel Valley, Shimron is right there. It's not as significant as Megiddo and it's not as significant as Hatsor, but it's in that same kind of class as major Canaanite city-states. And one thing that I've done, and we don't want to go too much into this here, is when you look at Joshua 12, which is the list of towns that Joshua kills their kings, it's clear that of the 30 or 31, uh, almost every single one of those towns was a major late Bronze Age city-state. Now, what we're seeing here in this discovery is a little bit earlier, but we do see in most of these places continuity from the Middle Bronze Age to the Late Bronze Age. And so what I would say in Joshua 11 and Joshua 12 is, you, you we can't look, we can't say that 
we can prove that Joshua was the one who beheaded the statues of Hatzor, and Joshua was the one who brought an end to Canaanite Shimron and, and all the different places that are mentioned in Joshua chapter 12. But what we can say is if we look at the wider list, it's interesting that all of the towns, or I think all of them, but maybe one or two, there's an exception, and Shimron is one of those, had significant late Bronze Age and specifically uh, significant late Bronze Age 2B, 13th century remains. And a number of these were brought to an end in that period, suffered some type of destruction. So that's that's one uh, thing to point out. Uh, another thing to point out about Shimron is its name was never Shimron. Uh, this goes back to, and I just have to say it because of uh, my former teacher, Anson Rainey, two of his favorite pet peeves uh, to, to really drive home were the Via Maris and Shimron. He called the Via Maris the ghost road to nowhere, and he called Shimron a ghost town. Uh, the reason why he called it that is not so much because it didn't exist, but because its name was never Shimron. It was actually the the, the name of Shimaon. Uh, that is, the name would have had an ayin in it as opposed to a resh. And this is actually just the name Simeon that we have as a, as a personal name and as a tribal name. And that's actually the name of uh, the Arabic, uh, the Arabic name of the site. We have it preserving the name Shimaon almost, uh, almost perfectly. And we find more mentions of the name after this in later periods, especially during the days of Josephus. Simeonis was one of the sites that uh, joined Josephus in the rebellion against the Romans in the late 60s AD. And so once again, if we think about the the issues of Arabic toponymy and philology, and now here archaeology, where it confirms that this is in fact the site, we can come to a greater understanding of what these names were actually called. I, I always kind of criticize the Hebrew renaming of sites uh, because they often make mistakes or get it get it a bit wrong, uh, and it perpetuates bad historical geography. In this case, the naming committee was not to blame. Uh, we have to blame this on the Masoretes because, or at least the tradition that the Masoretes had, because in the text of the of, of, of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, it has the R, the the resh instead of the ayin. But historical geography shows that was that was never that was never the name, and so as we as we think about uh, and I'll still call it Tel Shimron, uh, as we think about it uh, moving forward, uh, this should continue to be an extraordinary uh, an extraordinary site, and we look forward to more things that will that will come out. Okay, so thus far we have talked about the Bronze Age part of our discussion. We've looked at uh, the Kalashma language that was discovered at Hattusha, uh, the capital of the, of the Hittites. We've looked at the very first reference to Sinai 500 years, 600 years, 700 years before Moses could have existed. And we've also looked at the massive Canaanite walls that were uncovered at Tel Shimron just this past year. In our next discussion, we're going to look at the Iron Age, and we're going to start with, once again, some of the stories 
about what happened, and then we'll get into some of the really important finds. Uh, but we'll save that for our next episode. This, these three stories out of the top 10 have covered the Canaanite era, the earliest part that we have in the Hebrew Bible for the, for the biblical world. Kyle, any final thoughts? No, I'm just excited to keep going through these. I think that um, we still have a lot of really interesting stories to cover. Yeah, so tune in to our next episode as we move closer and closer uh, to our number one, which I told you is not necessarily the top find. Actually, for me, our number one is not just the important second temple. It's my favorite. So tune in next time as we continue to make our way through this list. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.